exercise of, of speaking it out, teaching is the exercise of teaching it out, but what you have to preach or teach out is as important, if not more important, than how you do it. One of the greatest sermons in American history was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that message, as it was preached, was preached from a manuscript. And the manuscript is everything is written out before he did it. His style, not just the day he preached that sermon, but the, his style, the entire, his entire life and entire ministry was to read it almost as if he was reading it. Now, Pastor Matt does manuscripts. Brother Eric does manuscripts. My pastor in the U.S., a lot of, a lot of preachers do manuscripts, and you have no idea that right in front of them is almost literally every word, including these and the full stops. Because when they're preaching it, you don't see them. And uh, uh, because they've gone over it in their mind so many times. But it wasn't that way with sinners in the hands of an angry God. He read the text. He read it. And God moved. And people were impacted. It was what was in the text that moved their hearts, not his delivery. Too many times we depend on the delivery to carry something that's not there. And I mentioned yesterday, you know, a thousand pounds of, of passion with one gram of truth, where we should be a lot of truth, and then the appropriate passion. When you preach on hell, there shouldn't be a whole lot of amening going on. Because the Lord is not willing that any should perish, why should we be? We should preach the truth, but there should be tears when you talk about hell, and tears of joy when you talk about being in the presence of God. So we should think about things when we preach. So this is a preaching workshop, but we are not focusing so much on the preaching as we are focusing on the preparation. Because you've got to have Bible in you to preach Bible out of you. Um, a few months ago, Pastor Matt found this piece, and I'm not going to read all of them, but there was a guy put up 28 pieces of unconventional preaching advice. And I don't have this copied for you in here. But these are just some ideas, um, and it just points. When you preach, preach like non-Christians are there, even when they aren't. I remember my pastor used to do that, and it's exactly, you know what that does? That makes you, or your people that are sitting there hearing it, that, that gives them the idea, they're like, oh man, I wish, I had invited this person to come and they didn't come, I wish they were here to, to hear this. Because why? Because you're, you're preaching like non-Christians are there. That doesn't just mean preaching the gospel. That means explaining what you're preaching. Have you ever seen anyone or had anyone in your ministry who got saved that you thought was saved before? If you've been, if you've been preaching more than five minutes, it's happened. You're like, whoa, this person came and got saved this morning. They were like, I thought I was a Christian, and today the Holy Spirit convicted me, and I trusted Christ. So you never know what the Holy Spirit is doing. If someone asks you, and this happens a lot, I think, between us preachers, what are you preaching about today? Can you summarize what you're going to say in one or two sentences? If you can't, you're probably not ready to preach. 
because you've got to know your, your target before you start. We call it, uh, I think maybe because Pastor Matt's a pilot, I love flying, we call it landing the plane. Sometimes you get preaching and you're never prepared for how the thing is going to end and you don't know how to stop and you have done really well and you've maybe delivered a good point and now you're circling waiting for permission to put the thing on the ground and you're like you're not knowing how to come down and then you wind up doing things like uh, amen uh, right uh, amen uh, you're just waiting like nobody's going to come tell you how to put it down brother you're going to have to chop the throttle and uh, ease that baby in and make sure you put it on the runway don't put it across the grass but we need to know where we're going and so you so knowing where you're going is summarizing your message to yourself i it is that is my hardest thing when i preach is to force myself at the beginning to make notes sometimes i'll even put them on the side of the paper all the way down i do it with paper i don't use a computer i use computer to teach but that on the paper i keep writing my target so as i come to each point reminding myself this is where you're headed this is where you're headed and that does not inhibit the holy spirit from doing work the holy spirit is going to do his work no matter what i just want to keep my mind on track because no good me running running that pussycat now go on top of the mountain, that fell out of another part. No, no, no. We need to stay where we are. He had two ideas. Preach because you love God and preach because you love people. And you know what? I don't think any of us has a problem loving God. We sometimes get crossed up and upset and we don't understand why God does certain things. But I don't think we ever do that. But man, sometimes we forget to love people. And Jesus said the two greatest commandments is to love God and love your neighbor. And when you're preaching, you have to love people. You have to love the sinners, you have to love the saints, whether they are sanctified and growing or whether they are stuck where they are, but it is the preaching of the word anointed by the Spirit of God that is going to transform their hearts. For young preachers, I, I read this and I thought, wow, this is good. So young preachers, hear this and, and consider it. If you are learning to preach and your pastor asks you to preach and then you're going to preach again or you're going to in in an environment where <clears throat> it's not sudden where you're like you just found out always preach something new force yourself to study because i've seen young preachers fall into the trap you've you've literally preached three messages in your whole life and one of them was pretty good people enjoyed it and you somebody asks you to preach two weeks from now and you're like you know what i think i'll preach that one really brother you've got two weeks when you become a pastor Every week you're going to have to be producing two and three messages a week. And, it, and, and when you're young, when there's not much other responsibility for your preaching, prepare something new. Study. Well, God blessed that one. Oh, well, thank goodness that's all God had is one blessing for you. Brother, put some time into it while you're, while you're young. Until you're good at preaching, preach five minutes shorter than your pastor if your pastor preaches on sunday let's just say he gets the the sermon whenever it starts but he usually finishes around 12 12 15 you stop at 11 50. you stop at 11 55. you're not smarter than he is and you don't need to go another 20 or 30 minutes it's showing respect to your pastor and if you've really said something people will be moved the few times that i've been able to speak at pensacola christian college there's a lot of students there and I don't remember them giving me any restrictions except for one thing. They would say, Brother Allen, uh, the bell is going to ring at 1048, and they all have classes they have to be at. 
if you preach beyond 1048 and that bell rings, no one is listening. Those Bibles are going to be closing. They're going to be reaching down, getting their backpacks. Some of them won't even be looking at you because you've just held their time. And I made sure that every one of my messages ended at 1045 or earlier. And you know what I found just about every time? If the Lord blessed the message, they sat there in shock. And I don't think it was because of my preaching. I think it was because the extra half minutes and the bell hasn't gone off yet. Preach shorter. You can say the same thing. If, you had to, if somebody is about to fall off a cliff, are you going to give them a 10-minute message on how to get saved? Like there's a person, there are, do you have 10 minutes? Brothers and sisters, every time we teach or, or minister, figure out how we can do it the best. I know I say that as a long-winded teacher, but it's the truth. Um, if you preach regularly, pastor, you don't have to say everything in one sermon. This is Pastor Matt and Brother Eric will be talking about today about preparing messages and sequentially continuing on. Even if you're doing a, a topic, you prepare it and you say, this is too much for one Sunday. Guess what? God just gave you two Sundays worth of messages. And so figure out how to split that up and make it two messages. Don't try to cram it all in. Young preacher, as you apply some of these principles, praise God that you do. But as I said yesterday, everything you learn, you don't have to preach it. Sometime you're going to take the scissors and you're going to go right into the middle of all that work you've done and you're going to cut that out because this is what is applicable to the people. The rest of it is in your brain informing how you do it. One of the things I love to do in sermon preparation, I've done it for so long, usually I can, by God's grace, I still have enough of a brain left. If it's a, if it's a, a, ser a sermon and, and it happened in Capernaum or it happened in Jerusalem, I, in my mind I've studied enough about those places. I don't talk about it but I see it in my head while I'm talking. I see the street Jesus is walking down. I see the people coming to him in my mind. And it actually, I believe people get it even though I don't say all that because I talk like it's really happening. And there are things that you're gonna put into your brain in your study that it's just too much to give your people. For example, I'm gonna give you too much right now. On the screen right now underneath that, have you noticed that they're scribbling writing? Have you ever noticed it? Has anybody tried to figure out what it is? Nobody has. But see, if I wanted to waste your time, I can tell you that this is the handwritten manuscript by Erasmus who gave us the Greek text that the King James translators translated from. And I thought, I should tell him about that. Nope, I won't. Why? It doesn't have anything to do with where we are. It's just to impress you with my great knowledge and how I managed to find that picture and get it grafted in just right. It's not helpful to you. And sometimes our preaching is exactly like that. We've got that. Um, you can preach, and I say this to you pastors who've been at it a while, and yesterday we talked a little bit about longevity. You can preach a terrible message and God can use it. But, but the, I think the key of all preparation is your heart. No matter what we talk about today, if your heart is not right with God, your spirit is not right with God, things aren't right in your home, brother, you're going to step into the pulpit with such a burden that you do not need. So keep the sin out of your life. Back to yesterday, a couple of things for review. Biblical preaching, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself what? Approved unto God. That's, that's first. You're here to be approved to God well-used phrases, we preach for an audience of one. 
if I want somebody to tell me how well I did it, I want it to be him. When I preach, I want it to, to glorify him. Sometimes we preachers, especially Baptist preachers, and it isn't PNG alone, it is U.S. everywhere else. We preach really hard because we think that's what God wants us to do. Better you know exactly what God intends through the text and what your people need. Sometimes our people are hurting. You realize that, right? They're hurting. They're tired. They're weary. And it may not be the time to beat on them. It'd be the time to love them. My pastor had, a, had something that he hammered into us about it. He goes, as the under-shepherd of the flock, Jesus is the chief shepherd, you are the under-shepherd. Those people are sheep. They are not your sheep. They are his sheep. And he goes, the sheep, if you want to preach a hard message, he goes, you can shear them once a year. He's talking about real sheep. If you've ever seen him cut the wool off the sheep, you don't do that every week. Otherwise, it'd be like me getting a haircut every week. There's nothing there. You shear the sheep once a year. He said you can, you can slaughter them once. Be careful with your rebukes. Be careful with your rebukes. And can I say this? Because I think it's applicable. We, a future BBI Palm Conference is going to be about church membership. Um, do not do your church discipline from the pulpit. Do your church, church teaching from the pulpit. But the discipline starts one-on-one, -on -one, then it goes two-to-one, then it goes church-to-one. That's, that's biblical. I hear guys say, I counsel from the pulpit. No, you teach from the pulpit. Counseling is sitting down with your brother or you and your wife sitting down with a sister and saying, hey, how can I help you? I see you straying from this, and how can I help you? It is serious business. We are in the business of taking care of sheep, not wolves. When we treat our sheep like wolves, they will act like wolves. I know it's fun. It's fun to be able to say, man, I get to preach. But the harder part of the ministry, but the, better, the harder and the better part of the ministry is spending time with your people. Study the word of God properly. Biblical preaching. Pastor will be talking about, Pastor Matt will talk about expositional preaching, topical preaching. Study the Word of God properly so that you can explain it faithfully. And again, I said yesterday, I didn't use the word preach here because all of us, in some context, may just be teaching. You may be teaching your children. You may be having devotions at home. You need to be able to explain the Word of God faithfully in every context. You may be at work. You may be a workmate. You guys are Bible study together. Or some person asks you a Bible question. You need to have studied the Word of God properly so that you can explain it faithfully. Topical preaching is <clears throat> generally what we do in Baptist circles. <clears throat> it is not, hear me, it is not historically what Baptists have done. We have a problem, and I just have to say this as an American. Americans have a problem thinking that 1940s to the, to the 1990s is church history. That is a small portion of church history. And in the 1940s, men began preaching topical messages. You go back to the 1800s, you go that. I think it, some of it comes from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was the only Charles Spurgeon that ever was. If you don't know who he was, many have called him the prince of preachers, and I would say prince of English-speaking preachers. Anything you can read by Charles Spurgeon, preacher, you should read it. English is from the 1800s. His ability in the pulpit, his, his mannerisms, his way to craft messages, 
by God's anointing and blessing, the guy would speak to 10,000 people a week. Newspaper reporters sat in his church and hand-wrote the entire sermons, and they were published the next day, plus they got his manuscript. They published it literally around the world. They published it in India and England and America as soon as he would preach it. This was a gifted man. Well, he was gifted with the ability to see topics and to be able to bring everything out. And so there began to be an idea that, well, this is the way we should preach the Bible. But we don't have a bunch of non-Spurgeons preaching topical messages. Expository preaching was the way it was done for centuries, even in the early church. The early church, the apostles did not get up and preach a message on love. They took one John and taught one John, went through the letter. When they taught on the life of Christ, they didn't hip-hop around. They went through the life of Christ as revealed by the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or sorry, Matthew and John, and then Mark and Luke wrote along with it. I'm trying to encourage you that the idea is God can use every kind of preaching. But we, we advocate expositional or preaching through books, both for your mind's sake and for your people's mind, because you know where you're going next week. If you started in Jonah this week, and you start preaching through Jonah, you know that for the next several weeks you're going to be preaching in Jonah. You can focus your mind in Jonah and do all of your study in Jonah. And that helps you and it helps your people because they remember what you preached last week and you can build on it. But if you preach on love this week and on women not wearing trousers next week and then we go topic, 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 your church winds up being people who have no idea as we used to say in the village, old thing, old saying, Abraham, he say kind of David. Now David, he say kind of Jesus. Now Jesus, he say kind of uh, one in there, Moses. No. Because they, 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 they don't have any idea of when things happened in the Bible and that really can mess with your mind as far as what things are happening. You know, it must have been, why didn't Jesus put the serpent on the pole? Why did Moses do that? Jesus should have done that. You know, they don't have any idea of the scriptures. And it's our responsibility to teach them the scriptures. The whole counsel of God is not all the topics in Scripture. The whole counsel of God is the books that God gave us. If God wanted to give us a topical Bible, he would have. And honestly, I think most of us really wish he had. I would really love to have the book of marriage, both for my marriage and to teach other people. I would love to have the book on judgment, but we don't. You have to find this verse here and this verse here and this verse here to be able to understand the concepts given in the Bible. Are you guys with me? You see, see what I'm talking about? So I'm going to leave that to Pastor Matt and, and Brother Eric this afternoon or the, the next session to work through some of those ideas with you and then show you how they do it. And I want to come back to just me with the principles here and try a couple of things and then we'll take a break. I mentioned this yesterday. Many pastors have never read all the books of their own Bibles. If that applies to you, brother, covenant with God that you will do it. I'm not even saying it's an option and I'm not going to give an invitation. You have to do it. This is what you do. This is your life. The scriptures are your life. Yesterday, I I'm making one in there. Some kind of talk of saying, we're all Christians and whatever and whatever. And people said amen. And I, I really wanted to go. I said nothing of substance and we amend it. But how many times somebody gives you a Bible truth and you look at them, as my pastor used to say, like a cow looking at a new gate. We should, we should think through this, that if you read your Bible, you haven't read it, don't take it as an insult that, that 
your brother is standing in front of you saying, read it, take it as a challenge. I remember what challenged me to begin reading systematically through the scriptures. It was a young missionary who, from America who went to Australia, and he preached Pastor Holmes for an hour. And I don't know if anybody else got bored, but I know one thing. God fascinated me by about 15 minutes into his message because scripture rolled out of his mouth like it was his breath. He just, one scripture after another, one scripture after another, one scripture after another, all of them applicable, all of them pertinent to his topic. And then somewhere in his message, he mentioned that, that even as a young man, he said, I'm on my, I don't remember how many number time of reading through scripture, and he says, it helps me so much to read through the Bible every year. It was a brand new idea to me. I was a second year Bible school student. It never occurred to me. I'm sure my pastor thought I did it. I was reading my Bible, but I wasn't consistently pushing my way through. That day, 1983, I said, God, two things I'm gonna give you. First thing in the morning, and I'm gonna read through the word all the time. Just keep reading through in addition to any study I do. And from 1983 to now, by God's grace, I, I followed that. I just said, God, I want to do this for you. And what a blessing he has given me by that decision. And I encourage you to do it, but I don't just encourage you. If you're a pastor, you have no option. You have to know the scriptures. And the only way you can know it is to read it and read it and read it and read it. Many don't read the Bible daily. And again, this isn't just here. It's America. And many people don't know the meaning of most, most of their Bible. And I'm talking about pastors. They don't even work to learn it. Lifelong learning. You continually study the scriptures. You make time for it. Yesterday we talked about tools for Bible study. I mentioned it's, it, these are tools for your tool shed. These are tools you will use for the rest of your life. Invest as you are, as you are able. And I personally believe, and maybe some other pastors might disagree with the order, but I believe this is the order you should be investing in. A Bible. If you can get a good study Bible, they're hard to get here. If you can get a good study Bible, don't just buy anything. Ask some pastors before you spend all that money. Hey, I see this, this, this Bible, this ESV Rainbow Bible. It's like, yeah, brother, probably not spend your money on an ESV Rainbow Bible. But it's a study Bible, missionary. It's what you said. No, no, I didn't. I just check with some brothers before you spend some money on it. A study Bible is good. I just don't want you to be led astray. But that, invest your money in that because, brothers, you're going to use this for years. You will use it for years, okay? You know KK? You know, what do you mean, Maggie Noodle? The second thing you should have, if you buy a good Bible, it may have a fairly good concordance in it. That concordance is absolutely necessary to look up references in Scripture. Yesterday I mentioned we let Scripture interpret Scripture, not you, not me. So we use the concordance to look those words up and see where else is that used? How is that used? Yesterday I mentioned the law of first mention. It's just, it's just a dictionary kind of thing. The first way a, a word is used in scripture is usually the, the dictionary meaning and every one or most every time it's used after that, it will mean the same thing. There are exceptions, but most of the time that's true. Well, you use the concordance to go back. When is the first time that word was used or when is the first time that phrase was used? give you an example. Paul says the phrase, God forbid, many times in the, in the New Testament. That's how the translators translate it. Actually, that isn't the word Paul used, but for the translators of 1611, that was the power word, power phrase 
to use for that, and it's good for us. We read that, that's good. You know what would be helpful if you looked up God forbid and see how many times Paul said that. Not to preach a message on it, but to see what are the things Paul said were so important that he would say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! Don't do that. You learn to look those things up. That's where you're going to use your concordance. The next thing is the English dictionary to understand words. Today, Brother Eric reminded me uh, with seeing the song on the screen. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. I never use the word acclamation in my everyday speech at all. I've never even written a paper and put, put acclamation in there. What is acclamation? Does anybody know? Don't be ashamed. If you know, it's not, it's not a sin that you, you learned the word. Sister? It is praise, yes, yes. The root word is hidden in it, acclaim. Acclaim, and again, that's a word we don't use all the time. But the shout of acclamation. He comes with a shout of acclamation. That is not our praise of him, it's his, his what, glorification in the return of Christ. But we sing the word, and it, honestly, I see everywhere misspelled words on the screen, and sometimes it's because we don't even know what the word means. You can use an English dictionary to look it up because if you're singing words you don't know, how will you be edified? That is 1 Corinthians, isn't it? Paul said, I would rather speak five words than 10,000 in an unknown tongue. And sometimes we're speaking in tongues when we speak in English because we're using words we don't know what they mean. But how much more in the scriptures? You read a word in your Bible, you're not sure what it means. Sometimes the context will help, sometimes it doesn't. So take your time. Study to show thyself approved unto God a what? Workman. Brothers, it's work. But it pays off. It pays off if you'll do the work. I told, I told you yesterday, every week, several times a week, I am in an English dictionary. And English is my mother tongue. It was all of my family's mother tongue for as back as far as my son Nate, pastor's brother, has traced our family history to the 1400s in England. Emerald England, white Blumeum, white, no, white altogether. <laughs> I mean, my f English is our mother tongue before it was a, a language. In other words, and I'm in the English dictionary because I don't know all the words and how much better when we invest the time and the, in, and the money. A Bible dictionary, find a Bible dictionary, you're going to see one. Ask about the quality of it. Not every Bible dictionary is the same, but a Bible dictionary is going to give you specific definitions for things from Bible times. Um, for example, um, Jesus talks about men being paid a penny a day. How much is a penny? How much is a penny? It's a day's wage. Brother Paul, what did you say? One toya. So, Flynn, how do you know it's a day's wage? You're, you're right. Biblically, you're right. How did you how did you find that out? You heard somebody talk about it once from a class. Yes, and yet Paul is right because in America, penny is one toya. Now, what can you do with one toya? We don't even have them anymore. I used to have some one toya somewhere, but you can't do anything. So Americans, Paul, when they hear that phrase, they work for a penny a day. Americans immediately say cheapskate. 
My name is no Baimo Gudia. You give me one toy, I'll make you work from morning to afternoon, you give me one toy. No, it's not. The, the word penny, as the translators used it, in their time, at the time of the King James translators, a pence, penny, was worth one day's wage. And it's a translation of the Greek word, which I'm not even going to mention, because it doesn't matter. The meaning was that. But when we apply the present meaning of the word, it totally throws the whole context off. The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel. It says, and we shall not prevent them which are asleep. Prevent nowadays means not like uh, 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 you already died sorry i'm going i'm going up with jesus in the rapture bro sorry you stay there you sleep i survived close to me been died but now we stop life bye no prevent means go before that is the old meaning of the english word doesn't even not even in usage anymore you pull up the english dictionary there it is you find about what pennies were worth bible term penny bible dictionary gives you the gives you the value and it makes it a whole lot different because I've heard guys preach messages trying to make the day's wage one toya. And you've just totally, your context is all off, and so therefore everything about your message comes out crooked. The penny was a good pay. Penny was a laborer's pay. But if we, we read it wrong, it doesn't help. These are things we invest in. And then lastly, I mentioned about commentaries. Especially be careful about commentaries because our bookshops in PNG have to cater to every denomination and so you have no idea what's the background of this writer. If you find a commentary and you're going to invest the money in it, or some, uh, somebody gives it to you, kiss him. If it's no good, it's good firewood. But if it's, if it's good, check with a brother. Hey, somebody gave me this commentary, Matthew Henry's commentary. How does he like? Brother, good one, read it. Adam Clark, Adam Clark's commentary. I'm talking about some old ones that sometimes you find in print and PNG. Good one, keep going. But the, but the thing is, you're going to spend the money on it. Get, get someone's advice first before you get one that's going to put you doctrinally wrong or is a waste of your time. I can just say this. If it's by Joyce Meyer or Joel Olstein, leave it where it sits. Both of those people will not just lead you astray. They will kill your spirit because it's all about positivity. And that's not what you need. That was free. Yesterday we talked about this, and I'll just go straight to this. When we're looking at the text... The first object is what does the text say, but we don't shortcut to our application. There's a way we work through this. And if you guys, if you took a picture of that yesterday, I, it's, on the, it's on the handout. I think it's the last page of yesterday's handout. Just take that as you do your prep for your sermon. Work your way through it that way. You may come to the same first impression you had, but you're going to have all these ideas behind it, which may make your message richer, Maybe part that you cut out, but it's absolutely necessary that you find the interpretation when it was written. It's in the text most of the time. You read it, you're like, okay, this is what it meant to them. What doctrinal truths are there to be brought out? What theological truths? And then how do we apply that? And some of it's going to be the doctrinal truths that we apply. Some of it's going to be what the text said that we apply. Some of it's going to be what it meant when it was written. How does that apply? All of this comes together as you take the time to work through the text. Now, I gave you the principles. But on top of the principles, let's, let's first of all put some into practice. Right, we've got good time. The English of the King James Bible 
is very, uh, it's better than any other English translation because of its, uh, the text it comes from, but also just the simple things like pronouns. What is a pronoun? It's a word that takes the place of a noun. So if I say, I'll use you, David, if I say David went to the store and I want to replace David with a pronoun, what pronoun am I going to use? He, very good. So we know what I'm talking about, he, okay? In English today, when I am talking about uh, I want you to go to the store, how many people am I talking about in our English? I want you to go to the store. How many people am I talking about? How do you know it's one? What if I've got two people saying it? I know we would probably say, I want you guys to go to the store. But we say you because you is singular and you is plural in English, modern English. Praise the Lord, in the King James Bible, it is never singular and plural. You is always plural in a King James Bible. You is sometimes seen as ye. Those, ye is not a word that we use. It depends on whether it's a subject or an object, but just know this, if the pronoun begins with Y, it's more than one person. Easy in pigeon, because pigeon you talk you, that means one. Does anybody talk you pillar or you tupla or you tripla, right? It's easy to see in pigeon, it's easy to see in a King James Bible. The singular of you is thou. You have you, you pillar, thou, you. You pillar, you, you, thou. Are you keeping up with me? Thou is one, always one, never more. It can sometimes mean like an entire nation. You could say, I speak unto thee, Israel. You're talking about the nation, but you realize he's speaking of them as one body. But when you're talking, thee and thou, and then the, their, what do you call it, their uh, possessive pronouns, thy and thine, if it starts with a TH, one person. The Y is always two or more. So you have you, you, uh, yeah, you and yours. Now here's the interesting thing about a text that we read over. I gave you that because I want to see how carefully you will read this text. This is at the Last Supper, Luke 22. Some of you may have preached this in the last couple of weeks. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? Simon, but who's Simon? Peter, that's part of the background that you're thinking. Like your people might not get that because we have Simon the Zealot also as well, but he's speaking to Simon Peter if you look at the context. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now some of you have been in my classes before, and so you know the answer to this one. Don't answer. But right here, Simon, Peter, so I'm marking my brother Justin right here. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Is he talking to Peter? Satan hath desired to have you, Simon. Does it say you or thee? You. You means how many? Plural. But he's talking to Simon. But he said, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. So is he just talking to Simon? Is he just talking to Simon as far as you? Who's he talking about? The disciples, everybody there at the table. But if we read it in our modern English, 
Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But can I make, give you Jesus' expression? Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for who? Thee. Did he say I've prayed for you? So I'm using my brother Justin. Justin, Justin, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. I got to tell you, in how many years I read right over that, that the whole thing is about Simon. But Satan didn't just desire to get Peter. Satan wanted to get them all. Do you follow what I'm saying? This is what we talk about, taking your time reading it. It changes the context. It changes it a lot. In fact, let the Bible speak. Who is the leader of the apostles in that text? You better get used to it. The scripture says it. It's not a Catholic thing. Jesus put Peter in charge of the rest of the group. And when you get to the book of Acts, can you quote me any of John's sermons? They're not there. Can you give me maybe Andrew and Thomas, some of the sermons they preach in the book of Acts? Who's the guy who keeps preaching? It's Peter. Now, he's not Catholic. He's not the Pope. It's just that Jesus said, you're the one that's going to be responsible for these men. And what does he do within the next few hours? He fails miserably. Did you know what Judas did not do? With his mouth, he never denied the name of Jesus. He sold him, which was sin. It was wrong, wicked. But Peter's the one who said, I don't even know that man within hours of this. And yet Jesus said, now the reason I bring that up, brothers, there are days you're going to feel like this is the bottom of the sea and you just took, you dove out of the dinghy with a spade and you went down and dug up the bottom of the sea and buried yourself even deeper like, God, I am just, I'm worthless. This is, in its context, Jesus praying for Peter. But if I go to the writer of Hebrews, he says, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. I, I go back to the Old Testament. He said to Israel, but I think it comes to his people, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. I am not going to leave you, no matter how much you mess up, which isn't an encouragement for us to mess up. He'll let you know when you mess up or when you feel like you can't go anywhere. There's nothing left. Jesus is still with you. And this context is to Peter, but I want you to know Jesus stays with us like that. Now, what I just did is I took you through the text. I brought you to its context where they were then. I didn't talk too much about doctrine, but I made the application by pulling. You see what I just did? I just went three of those steps. I meant what I said, but I just did it in that process. I didn't shortcut. I didn't say, he prayed for Peter and he's praying for you. Same truth, but I came all the way through. But this shows us we need to take time to read. This is something that I read this morning. I told you I'm reading through Revelation right now. This is John said, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of a false prophet. Okay? What, what did he see come out of the mouth of the beast, false prophet, and uh, the dragon, Satan? What did he see come out of the mouths? Okay, how many say unclean spirits? Go ahead, raise your hand. Commit. Unclean spirits, okay? How many say frogs? 
Okay, I got some there. Okay. There's one word that tells us they weren't frogs. What is it, Pastor Kyle? Like. I saw three unclean spirits. That's what he saw. But when he saw them, he has no idea. How do you describe them? What do they look like, John? John's like, hey, you know, why? <laughs> I don't know. They look like frogs. Now, I don't know how much frogs you have in your section of town, but out here, toads are endemic. Toads, toads own this place. We come back from BBI Palm at night. If we've had lick-lick rain, hey, you have to put earplugs in. <laughs> and sorry, this highway is not just potholes. It's a mot-mot for frogs. And some of them are just dumb as a box of rocks. They're like right there in the headlights, like looking right at you. And you're just like... And then some of them are like, I'm way over here. Wait, hit me too, hit me too. And they... And it's just constant. It's just like, and, and I can't even, you know, I, I, I hate killing animals, but man, you're just like, man, these frogs are everywhere. So John's like, I saw these spirits, and they reminded me of frogs. There is no reason to try to extrapolate what did he mean. They had big mouths. They had long, snapping tongues. They had legs. They jumped. I don't know. There's a lot of attributes of frogs, but they're, everyone in our audience knows what a frog looks like. You don't have to waste time describing a frog. And you also oh, don't have to add to the text and say that maybe they were jumping, maybe they were shooting tongues out of it. Don't. Just, I saw unclean spirits. And the best way I could describe them is they were frogs. And you don't do anymore. Everybody's got the picture. But if we don't read it carefully, sometimes we'll go, now these three spirits came out and they, were, they, they looked like frogs. No, they didn't. He didn't. He just said they came out like frogs. That could be how they acted. It's, we don't know. But read it carefully. What did he see? He saw unclean spirits. And it, then he defines the unclean spirits, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth. I have seen drawings of frogs with, what do you call it, like a stick like Moses in their hand with miracles happening. Did he say it was a frog? <laughs> They're unclean spirits like frogs. We don't know what they mean. But I'm, I'm giving this because I read it this morning, and it's just like, Simple things in, in, in the text of Scripture as you read it. Read it for what it says. The plain sense, if it, if it makes sense, don't look for another sense. See what it is. You're like, I don't understand it. Neither did John. He, but he did describe what it was and all of that that's involved. I want to turn to a passage just to work through one together. Go to Revelation chapter 3. In our Wednesday evening um, faith family meeting at Barocco, uh, we're going through the book of Revelation, but not going through the book of Revelation as, ooh, let's, let's talk about all the, the tribulation period and whatever. We, I think we've been four weeks on uh, the first five verses of chapter one, first eight verses of chapter one, because there's a lot there to unpack. The book of Revelation was written to whom? It's written to churches. Are churches made up of unsaved people? No. Are there unsaved people in our churches? Yes, yes. When you talk about the actual body of Christ, they're all redeemed. But on any and every given time, you me low to one time, Sunday, Wednesday, whatever, you, whatever time you low to, there are unsaved people there. 
So when we talk about the local assembly, you have saved and unsaved. But when God is speaking to the church, who is he speaking to? The Christians. Very good. That's something to keep in mind because sometimes we forget. The letter to, the, to Corinth, 1 Corinthians, is written to the church at Corinth. Is that right? They were a church. Were they good or were they messed up? They were messed up, but they were still what? A church, which means they were still believers. It wasn't a building, it was believers. And they were believers that were so messed up, there was a believer in the congregation committing fornication with his father's wife. A believer, not a, not, you know, hide in mind. He was a Christian. There were Christians in the church who edified themselves and talked about how good they were and how spiritual they were. There were arguments in the church, God's people, about Paul's the better preacher, Apollos is the better preacher. Oh, I've heard Peter, Cephas is the best. And then the real humble one, oh, we just believe in Jesus. Paul laid all that out. Every one of the sins, and there's so many more in 1 Corinthians, it is a church. It's believers. He's not talking about lost people. He's talking about believers. Well, here's the thing we tend to forget about Revelation. It's written to seven different churches. Count them right. Seven different churches. And those seven churches are made up of believers. And the one we tend to forget the most is made up of believers is the last one. What is the seventh church that the letter is written to? Laodicea. Now, many preachers preach messages on we are the Laodicean church, and I think there's an aspect that definitely goes that way. But I think the Laodicean church is in every age because somewhere, everywhere, you have people who are just not getting it, but they're still God's people. Backslidden, cold, indifferent as they are, they are still God's people. No excuses to be made, but we are to love them as brethren. We are to encourage them as brethren. With that in mind, Let's read Revelation 3, 14. Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. By the way, can I help you with this too? I heard a preacher once, and boy, everybody amended. I amended it too because I didn't read my Bible. He goes, do you see? This isn't God's church. It's the church of the Laodiceans. The other ones are like the church at Thyatira, the church at Thardis, Sardis, whatever. And then somebody said, did you ever read your Bible? because it's also called the Church of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So this doesn't mean that this is, these people are away from God. The one letter, 1 and 2 Thessalonians are, are commendation letters from Paul, and he calls it to the, to the Church of the Thessalonians. So just the title of the Laodiceans doesn't mean that it was all about them. It just happens to be how John addressed this particular one, or actually Jesus addressed it through John. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works. He says that about just about every church. And then he says that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou art cold or hot. Now that's an interesting thing for him to bring out, cold and hot. We've all heard messages preached on cold and hot. Verse 16, so then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, this is where those, we were talking about those study devices or looking it up. It's got to a place, if preacher, if you're using a smartphone, um, save the data from Facebook and use it to, like, Blue Letter Bible or some of the websites where you can look up some good stuff that will help you spiritually. 
If you look that up, you'll find out that Laodicea was, did not have its own natural water source. It had cisterns, but it didn't have its own natural water source. And you, can, it's, you, you we, we know what dry season is. The rain tanks are dry. You're not getting any water from the sky. And so Laodicea, they had built water courses or aqueducts from um, Hierapolis on one side and um, Colossae on the other. Now, Hierapolis, the very name of the town, means the place of the sun or the hot, hot. They had hot springs at Hierapolis. And the water from Hierapolis, hot springs, was brought down in aqueducts, stone aqueducts, to the city of Laodicea. On the Colossae side, Colossae and Laodicea, I don't know if you can call them twin, twin cities or twin towns, but when you read Colossians, it says to read the letter of Colossia, the Colossian letter to Laodicea, and get the letter from Laodicea and read it there. Paul wrote a letter to Laodicea. We don't have it. That's in there, but you read your Bible. You've got to follow it. You take your concordance and look up Laodicea and you find things. But in a Bible dictionary, you'll find out that those two water courses coming from Hierapolis with hot water and from uh, Colossae with cold water, they brought a water supply into Laodicea. The problem is when you travel that far, hot water cools off and cold water warms up in that environment. This would be, these seven churches are located in what we today call Turkey. So as the water came hot from Hierapolis, if you had gone to Hierapolis and been in those hot springs, you were like, whew, scoop up that water and dump in the 3-in-1 or put your tea bag and you're ready to go. But when that water course made it all the way to Laodicea, it had lost almost all of its heat. And so when you were ready, you were like, oh, this water's coming down from Hierapolis. Oh, sweet. Well, there's no tap. It's coming in that conduit. You pour that in your cup, you dump in the three-in-one, nothing happens. It all floats on the top. And you're like, oh, man. But then they're like, hey, this conduit comes from uh, Colossae. Oh, I've been up there. Oh, they got the best cold, sweet water. Ugh, it's so good. So you run over there with your cup, and your hot sweat's dumping down, and you get the water coming from you. Like, oh, this is Colossae. And you put it in your mouth, and it's, eh, it's lukewarm. It's like room temperature. And you thought it was going to be cold. You were ready to pour it over your head, and you were like, Oh, man, it certainly wasn't what I expected. Jesus is speaking to that church in terms that Laodicea understood. They knew, hey, we need water. And we're thankful that Hierapolis and Colossae supply us water, and theirs is hot and theirs is cold, but if people expect it to be hot and cold when it gets here, they're going to be very disappointed because the hot has cooled down, the cold has warmed up, and we just get lukewarm water here, but we're happy we get water. But Jesus says this to the church because they know what that means to not get what you're expecting. He's not talking about them being on fire for God or being cold and distant from God. He's talking about not being what they're supposed to be. We are a church, Laodicea. And he goes, when I come and see you, the idea of spewing out of the mouth, God doesn't have them in his mouth. He's using the illustration that all of them understood. The people in Ephesus would have understood it because they traveled over to Laodicea. The people of that era would have understood the whole context. We are so far removed from the context, we have to be careful we don't make things up for what it says. Now you could, as you make your way around, explain what I just explained and come back to an application. Are you, are you cold in your relationship to God? You see, they wanted to have a cold water at Colossae, and Laodicea wanted to have cold water. But they had, they had become lukewarm, not just cold, lukewarm. You know what lukewarm does? One of the reasons that aircon helps us, it helps you stay awake. If we, did, if we had a, a closed-in church and we didn't have aircon, hey, you know a long time in. 
Why? Because we hit that temperature. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just like, oh, no. You can bring that out in your final application, but give the truth of what it was. The Laodiceans were just used to living a lukewarm lifestyle because that's what it was. You say, oh, we don't, we don't have access to all that stuff. Nowadays, preachers, you have access to these things, and you can look it up. Rather than creating our own ideas of what things should be and then preaching it and pounding it and everybody amens and it's all a bunch of fluff, All the rebukes of Laodicea, I don't want to take the time, I want to just finish with this. We come down, verse 19, just like he does in most of these letters, he said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. Can the Laodiceans get right with God? Yes, he just told them, and I, I didn't go through it, he just told them, these are some things that I see. And as you go back through chapter two and three, he lists the problems in ch the churches that these letters are addressed to. He goes, but here's the deal. If you will be zealous to come back, to do right, repent, they're not lost. They just have gone away from God. The first church had left its first love. It didn't lose it, it left it. That was the, the, the thing for Ephesus. But then we come to 320, because this is to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, what? If any man hear my voice and open the door, what? Uh-huh. I will come in to who? Him is how many? Him. One. One. This is addressed to an entire church, but you know where this, when you read this, revival starts with one. I will come in to him. Revelation 3.20 is you could apply it to salvation, but that isn't what it's talking about. Its context is a church that is away from God. They think they're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And in Jesus' words, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and butt naked. You haven't got any clothes on. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And he says, and then can you imagine the people looking around? Well, how can I repent? Because all these brothers won't do right and these sisters won't do right and whatever. And Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, and it would mean woman, if any man hears me and opens the door, I will come in to him. And once he comes into one, he'll come into another and into another. This is about a church getting right with God, the worst church in the book of Revelation. This is Jesus' promise not to save people. This is Jesus' promise to revive his church one person at a time. We can never say it's too dark. This we're at the end of the age and everything's going down and it's all bad. Hear me, hear me well. Revelation 3.20 is, is rejoice because Jesus will come to one of us. And if one of us will get on fire, then maybe two of us will get on fire. And if two of us will draw near to God, then maybe three will. And one by one, inside the church, it'll come back. That's the context of Revelation 3.20. But you only get that when you read it in the broader context of chapter 3 and in chapter 2, that this is written to a church, not written to lost people. Again, you can apply it, but that's not what it's saying. Does everybody follow me? I'm not trying to correct you in what it is, but I want you to read your Bible carefully because many times we miss the real application of Revelation 3.20, which to me is way more powerful than using it as a salvation verse. I can hammer to town with John 3.16 on salvation. 
but I've got Revelation 3.20 because I want to see the church revived. I want to be that first one who goes. If you've ever seen the old painting of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, the door is there, the weeds are hanging on the door, it's been so long since the door was open, but there's one thing missing on the door. What's missing on the door? There's no handle on the outside. No handle on the outside of the door. That's why he's knocking. You have to let him in. Jesus isn't SEAL Team 6. He's not kicking the door down and coming in. He said, if any man hear my voice and open the door, some hear the voice and don't open the door, hear the voice and open the door, I will come into him. Can I leave this as my exhortation for you because the rest of these sessions are going to be my two brothers? Do you hear his voice saying, come to me in, this, in the scripture and let's do this right. Let's study the word of God faithfully that we can explain the word or study the word properly so we can explain it faithfully. Would you heed the voice of the Spirit of God and say, God, you being my helper, I want to transform how I do my study, how I spend my time in the Word for myself and for my people, for my family. And if, that, if, if God does that for you, I feel like I have accomplished what I want because I love you guys. I, I, I am thankful for you coming, and I'm just praying that God will bless you as you listen, as you learn, and what you can apply. We're going to take a break now till 10.15. At 10.15 when we come back in, uh, just before I give it to Pastor Matt and Brother Eric, um, I have books for those who were not here yesterday, pastors and preachers, and so I'll give those out and then we'll turn it over. But you guys go ahead and take the break. 15 minutes, we'll see you back. Thank you very much.